Hello, everyone. Jeremy here. Really quick, before we start the show, there's something I wanted to make uh, everyone in the Candare Nation aware of. It's been brought to our attention that there's a family here in the Columbus area, the Kennett family, whose little girl Maddie, just a few weeks ago, was uh, starting not to feel right, running a fever, I think, feeling lethargic. And the poor little girl now is fighting for her life in ICU. Uh, I don't think the doctors know exactly what's happening. All kinds of tests are being run on this little girl to find out what's happening. And I believe they've even found a mass that's growing against her heart. And this poor little girl, again, is fighting for her life in ICU. Now, I don't need to remind anybody what trying times we are living in with this pandemic we are facing and that uh, 2020 has not been a good year for a lot of us uh, financially, mentally, etc., etc. But imagine through all that having something like this on your plate as well, your child fighting for their life. I don't even have children, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine the horror this family must be experiencing right now. So this is where we turn to you members of the Candare Nation. We wanted to let everybody know that the GoFundMe has been started for uh, Maddie Kennett's medical expenses. And uh, we're going to have links for that on our website, on our Facebook. That's probably going to be the best place to find those links uh, on our social media. We're going to try to put it as many places as possible and make it as easy for anybody who would like to possibly donate to the Kennett family's medical expenses as possible. Now, the episode you're about to hear is pre-recorded, so you're going to hear me in the episode doing my normal Patreon rants where we ask you to give us money. And if you're thinking of that, well, God bless you. But if you have been thinking that, let's put that thought on hold right now and let's use that money to give to the Kennett family. They need it way more than we do. And if there's any member of the Candare Nation out there who does make a donation to the Kennett family, send uh, us here at the show a screenshot of your donation along with your address and we will send you a free Candare button just as a thank you. If you're unable to donate, then just share the link. Share this with as many people as possible. Sharing and getting exposure is just as important as the donations coming in. We would really love to see the Candare Nation pull together here and throw some money at this family to make this trying time as easy as possible uh, as we can. So let's see what this Candare Nation is made of. Again, go to our Facebook or any of our outlets. You're going to find a link. And if you can't find it there, you can just go to GoFundMe. It's Maddie Kennett. That's M-A-D-D-I-E. Kennett is K-E-N-N-E-T-T. Kennett's Medical Expenses. Just search that. And uh, let's do what we can for this family. Thank you all so much for listening. And without any further ado, let's start the show. You're listening to the Candare Podcast. Your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Candare, your tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Randy Hardenbrook. And joining us today, we have two very special guests. We're, we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Jaws uh, this week and uh, both of these guests beyond excited to have. Our first guest, he is, you can see his work in all three Jaws films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Escape from New York, and that's just to name a small few. He, all, he has a book out currently called Designing Jaws, which has pre-production illustrations, handwritten location, production notes, on-set photos, etc., etc. 
Uh, we welcome art director, production designer, Joe Alves, to the show. Joe, thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. <clears throat> and our other guest, this gentleman uh, had an actual cameo in the original Jaws, and he uh, spearheaded the project Return of the Orca, which was rebuilding the original uh, boat from the uh, movie and another docuseries he's working on currently called Making the Monster, which is all about the making of the Jaws film. We welcome David Bigelow to the show. David, thank you so much for being here. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to have a good time today in our retro roundtable. We're going to be talking about just uh, some of our favorite movie monsters. And then uh, after we do that, we're going to turn our full attention over to David and Joe and talk everything Jaws. But before we do all that, don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandAirPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And uh, if you like what we're doing, want to throw a few bucks our way, head over to Patreon.com forward slash CandAirPod. $5 $5 a month gets you access to the Candare Patreon pod. What else am I forgetting? So join us on our Facebook page every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Jack and I do like a little game show and uh, essentially win some prizes, meet some people, have Play some fun. Play along with us. There it is in a nice little package. Let's not put this off any longer. <laughs> Let's get right to it with our retro round table. Do it. Do it! Come on! I'm here! Come on! Do it now! Oh my god! The Kill City! All right, uh, Randy, do you want to kick us off in the realm of uh, your favorite movie monster? Yeah, so uh, anytime I hear movie monsters, the first thing I think of is Godzilla. It was a I huge, knew you were going to say that. <laughs> it was a huge fan growing up. My dad and I used to watch the old, early Godzilla films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just some of the uh, the original black and white, uh, Gojira, Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And then just some of the, the 70s where it got a little campy, but... Uh, just love the rubber suit. Love the seventies campy Godzilla <laughs> is still better than I think a lot of the like the yeah. modern Godzillas. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are a little little campier than normal. <laughs> the sets are so detailed. So I mean, from being back then too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of well, the Power Rangers. Of course, yeah, they did the easy. same kind of thing. <laughs> Except uh, those monsters didn't really grow on me like the old uh, Godzilla no, ones did. You know all. what I mean? Some of those were scarier than. <laughs> Any of the Power Rangers types. Oh, much more, much more. They had to kitty it up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, let's turn our attention over to Dave. Dave, favorite movie monster? Oh, boy, that's a good one. Well, you know, I, my, it's always comes back to Jaws because that was my first real cinematic experience with movie monsters, um, especially because, you know, having been a, a kid on the vineyard and saw the filming and was in that Alex Kintner attack sequence. Um, you know, Jaws, when they screened it for us on the vineyard, it was such a different experience than than most of us expected it to be, because I grew up with Godzilla and and, you know, we thought of monster movies as being somewhat, um, you know, entertaining, but not necessarily terrifying. Sure. And Jaws was terrifying. So <clears throat> I always I, I do go back to Bruce as being the first monster that really, you know, made my heart jump in my chest. Uh, when I uh, when I experienced it, so I, I certainly have to go back to Bruce. I can totally understand that, and it's uh, it's funny because I I am about to be thirty nine years old, and I did not grow up with Jaws. I only within the last year have seen the film, and so many people you know said uh, you're going to love it, and then there was a group of people that'd be like, well, you didn't see it when you were young, you know, maybe it won't have the same impression. They were wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was on the edge of my seat mm-hmm. the first time you see the shark come up out of the water, mm-hmm. like when he's throwing throwing the, the chum out, the the chum out yeah. like 
oh man, the attacking the hall. It was so good. It was so good. And it has stand the test of time. I totally get that. So my dad and I watched that when I was probably, oh boy, seven or eight, right before we went to Disney World. Mm-hmm. And then they wondered why I didn't get in the ocean the entire time I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, even as an adult, having just seen it, like it does give me kind of the willies to go back into the ocean. Because I used to, you know, just... I don't know, just run out there so carefree. Jellyfish, bring them on. Sharks, what do I care? (laughs) Now I know. (laughs) Now I know. All right, uh, let's uh, ask Joe, favorite movie monster. Well, I have to go way back. I mean, uh, I'm so much older than you guys. That would be in the 40s. It would be, uh, and and before that would be Frankenstein and Dracula. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> we talk about that Frankenstein yeah. movie quite a bit. I love that film, especially the scene by the river with the girl. It's it's mm-hmm. heart-wrenching. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to steal the conversation away from you, Joe. No, no, there's, you know, because that, that's going back. Uh, I can't remember, let's see, monsters uh, when I was a kid. So that would be Frankenstein and Dracula, you know. Sure. And that was interesting because I worked at Universal for such a long time, and I'll never forget this. They would throw away stuff. They didn't save anything. And I remember going back for something, and they were going through all these old drawings, and they were throwing away the uh, set designs of the Frankenstein. You know, I thought, oh, you know, it, it, it was, you know, and they all went into the dumpster, which would be worth a lot of money now. Having oh, yeah. that stuff. yes. But, uh, yeah, that was a you know a big big deal. The Frankenstein's. Were ahead. there any monsters in that time? I, I can't think any physical monsters uh, other than you know. I don't know. Was, I'm sure. Like the where the mummy. Anyway, go ahead. Maybe the a mummy was another one. Oh yeah, around that time. Yeah, I don't think like the big. The like, mummy was that later though, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the Mummy, I think, was after those mm-hmm. two. Um, I don't think the sci-fi, like, big Yeah, well, movie... yeah, because Frankenstein started, yeah, much earlier, you know. Yeah, it was like 1931, yeah. I think. Yeah, something like that. I don't think the big sci-fi Yeah, in the 30s, was... Dracula, and then the part, mm-hmm. I was going to say, I don't think the big sci-fi monsters really started until after the Creature from the Black Lagoon came out. I think that kind of oh. kicked off the... That's what I was thinking, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. Uh, when was that? That was. Um, I want to say that was like fifties. In the fifties. I, I think so. Yeah, I, I remember. I talked to the director. Can't remember his name right now. And uh, we had a meeting because I was going to do Jaws 3D, Jaws 3 in 3D, and he was a little upset because he was going to redo something in 3D, uh, maybe you know, uh, at the same time, and he thought it would. Anyway, that's uh, wow. of little importance. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a fun fact about the Frankenstein movie: uh, Boris Karloff, you know, who portrayed the monster. If you, you know, you see the cover when you see his face, his uh, the side of his face kind of looks mm-hmm. sunken in. Mm-hmm. He had a bridge that he inten- in, uh, intentionally took out so his cheek would sink in like and that to the, add to the effect uh-huh. of so like, it wasn't the just makeup really? that did it. No, yeah. he took a whole bridge out to make his face sink yeah, in wow. like that. And it added so much, I think, <laughs> you know, to, you know, it looks well, like it set the standard, Andy Frankenstein, you make anymore. Cause well, it, yeah. well, it was a replacement, like uh, false teeth, a whole, 
unit? Or? Yeah, that's what I understand. He had, like, in the side of his mouth. I don't think they did bridges and implants much at that time. I don't know what they had, but mm. I, that's what I had heard, that he had some kind of removable bridge or something that he removed his teeth there. Well, it was probably, you know, people had false teeth. Well, the whole thing was just, you know, a, a unit that you put in. I but, see. Uh, I think uh, bridges and implants were uh, didn't come much later. That would make sense. Anyway, but it was probably just a a false teeth that he removed. I'll have to I'll have to (laughs) tweak my facts. (laughs) All right, that brings us over to uh, Jack. Mine goes a little bit more kitty, I guess, and with animation. One of my favorite movie monsters was the Iron Giant. Even though he technically wasn't a a monster, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he was a big giant robot. Well, I mean, kind of mm-hmm. very much like Frankenstein's monster, misunderstood. Well, that's you know? true, yeah. yeah. I mean, when he saw weapons, then he turned into something that was pretty scary. Well, that's true, he did. And not, <laughs> it's not like I saw it when I was a kid, too, and was like, oh my gosh, I was scared. It was kind of scary seeing him transform into that big old weapon, even watching mm-hmm. it as a teenager. Sure, he was enormous. Mm-hmm. He was enormous. I haven't seen that in so long. Was that Shia LaBeouf who voiced uh, the kid in that? Who... who uh... I don't know. Can't remember. I remember there was the what the jazz singer was, was Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel was, was the, the robot. Yeah, yeah. The robot. I see. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember who the kid was. I can't remember. It's it's unimportant. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's unimportant. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess my pick is going to be, and this is going to come as no big surprise to anyone here, but. Uh, the T-Rex from the first Jurassic Park. Oh, yes. Mm. You know, there have been so many installments of this franchise to come out after the first one, and they all lean so heavily on uh, CGI, which I don't... Not to say it looks bad, because a lot of them look good, but at the same time, the first few steps that T-Rex takes out of the broken fence between those Jeeps and lets that roar out, it doesn't matter how many times you see it, it looks horrifying, it sounds horrifying, it's just... I, I can't get desensitized to it. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that. You know what I mean? I still can't get over that it took being on this show to find out that it was actually a lot of practical effects for that dinosaur. Oh, yeah. I that that T-Rex was an animatronic yeah, on that scene there. No yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jack's like, that wasn't real? <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was all CG. It's just like, a, I mean, a lot of them were, but yeah, I didn't realize I think that uh, that they tried to keep that one as practical as possible and just uh, filled in. You know, some shots had to be CG. I think so. some of the right. raptor scenes, obviously that brontosaurus, that had been one. What about running when he was chasing the, the truck? Oh, I can't. I imagine that had to be CG. Yeah, Yeah. I can't imagine they were making that animatronic plow through trees. Actually, it was just a guy in a normal sized suit running after a a remote control car. They looked back to Godzilla for inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, I think we. That's probably good. We should uh, probably move on with the conversation. You guys good? Mm -hmm. Any other favorites we wanted to? uh, Anybody wanted to list before we moved on? Gremlins. Oh, Gremlins. Well, I, I did work on a monster. I did work on a monster that was animated uh, many years ago called the Id for, for Forbidden Planet. Really? If anybody had seen that? For okay, I think yeah. I have. That's um, I think I have too. That's the one that kept like constantly evolving throughout the uh, the movie, right? Yeah. Then it gets caught into this uh, a- a- electronic thing, and, and it comes out. Uh, Sort of this electronic monster, and that was all hand animated. And I was, uh, wow. I, I was the assistant animator on that project. Uh, 
I was 19 years old. That was back in the 50s. That is so cool. I love hearing this. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess I'm not, unless anybody else had any other uh, monsters they wanted to get off their chest really quick. Nope, my name Well, I, the only other one I would I would add the um, uh, the Xenomorph from Alien, uh, you oh, know, which oh, only yeah. came out four years after Jaws. Yeah, that was cool. And I thought they did a really great job. Again, all practical. We didn't have any, you know, CGI involved on in, in films at that point. Right. And I think Ridley Scott really borrowed a lot from Jaws in terms of minimizing the appearance of the creature and just hinting to the the alien being, you know, in certain spots and, and letting you feel like one of the crew members looking down those corridors, not sure whether or not you were going to run into it or not. And uh, I thought they did a fantastic job on just creating suspense uh, in the dead space uh, of, of that ship. And, uh, yeah, just a, a really, and again, a, a Leviathan creature that has no sort of, motivations or can't be reasoned with or it's just basically a killing machine right. uh and uh and and you're just sort of waiting to like you know either be avoided or or be encountered yeah and of all the i guess i haven't even seen all the alien films but of all them i of all of them i have seen in that first one if you can get like a really good look of the xenomorph of the person in that outfit it doesn't look great but like dave is saying you know, they did such a great job of, I guess, not putting the spotlight, always keeping it lurking in the shadows, only catching hints of it here and there. And, mm-hmm. oh, it was so suspenseful. <laughs> so suspenseful. And a lot of times you weren't sure if you you were looking at, like, on the walls and stuff. Yeah, like when it was uh, sleeping the cords and stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> i have to watch that one again now. Um, I, I guess one more I'll mention really quick uh, was from the M. Night Shyamalan movie Signs. Mm. And it's not even so much the monster itself. It's just kind of the way they presented it. You know, they, they, that movie was about aliens coming to Earth, invading and whatnot. And you never get a really good glimpse of the alien until the end. <laughs> right. But there's a scene of that movie where they're watching the news. Mm-hmm. And a reporter comes on and says this was taken at a kid's birthday party today. Uh, you know, brace yourself. This is kind of jarring what you're about to see. And, you know, they take a shot up the alley and you just see really quick one of these aliens step sideways, you know, walk yeah. across this alley. You don't see him more than a second. You can't even get any detail. But My I tell you, when I saw that in the theater, <laughs> I it, and I guess it's also the prefaces of, you know, the breaking news thing coming in, you know, them setting you up like what you're about to see. You know, maybe that had something to do with it. But it was horrifying. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Hands down horrifying. I'll never forget that. Yeah. And a good note to end on, I suppose. <laughs> uh, man, I, I'd almost rather deal with those aliens than the, than the pandemics we're dealing with, you know? Easy. But, um, all right, let's turn our attention over to Joe and David and get excited about Jaws. But, you know, before... I actually dig straight into Jaws. Uh, Joe, one question I wanted to ask with you, because every, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of interviews, read a lot of stuff with you, and typically uh, most people seem to start right at Jaws. And don't get me wrong, we're getting there. But I am very curious, where does your journey uh, just into the Hollywood world, into the business begin initially? Well, that would be uh, Forbidden Planet. Uh, okay. It was 1955. I was in art school and uh, it was very, very strange. I was second year, going to my third year, I was very young, I got out of high school, I just turned 17. And I was down in LA and, uh, and um, I lived in the Bay Area, San Francisco. So I wanted to get a job to stay in LA and uh, 
this friend of mine said, oh, my, uh, my wife's father uh, works at Disney. So happens he's the guy that hired the, the animators. Uh, so he said, uh, I've got to get a job sweeping up. Anyway, I try to make this as quick as I can. Uh, he said, You're bring your portfolio. And I thought, well, I'm, I didn't think I was ready. And anyway, uh, I, I brought my portfolio. He said I was too late for the program to, to teach you how to do Mickey Mouse, but he could put me in special effects. And I went in special effects, and Josh Better was the, the king of special effects. He did Night in Bottle Mountain. He did the fire and Bambi and all this. Anyway, long story short, I, I worked, I, I started working for uh, his uh, breakdown artist. And normally you, you start as a trainee, breakdown in between here, and it goes on for years to become the sister. In a few months, that, the woman I was working for, she left. The work, his assistant had to go to the hospital. So I was uh, 19, working as his assistant after a couple months and doing the uh, the id uh, for Forbidden Planet. And uh, that's how my initial start in the business, you know, it went on from there. And it, when, uh, what year was this again, approximately? Well, that was uh, a 55 and uh, 57, I left. I really wanted to do live action. Uh, so I worked at a little theater, the Hollywood Playhouse. I did uh, set, uh, set designs, uh, the drafting, uh, architectural drawings and illustrations. I got a portfolio and uh, then I checked with the union and they said when every, you know, nobody's available, you could go look for a job. But I did and I got a uh, my first job, and then what happened in those days was the studio system, Fox, Paramount, whatever. Uh, when you're new at the thing, you're the the last to be hired and the first to be fired. So when I worked on Mutiny on the Bounty, the one with Mar Marlon Brando, I worked on My Fair Lady, I worked on all these movies, just doing a little bit of this and that. And when they finished that, then you went off to another studio. Uh, and then uh, sort of my home became universal and I became a, a senior set designer and I worked on Mad Mad World for like months and months and months. And then I became an assistant art director and I was fortunate to work on Elvis Presley's last movie, Change of Habit. And then I worked with Hitchcock on Torn Curtain. And then my big break, I became an art director. And then Night Gallery was uh, a very uh, big um, break in, in my life to do that series for three years incredible so much work but i mean you see how you get uh, how one gets so good at their craft so where the where does then jaws first appear in your career i mean were you there for from the conception or uh, were you brought on a little later sound like you had a ton of experience under your belt by the time jaws come along oh i i was on jaws before spielberg what happened was uh I had met Stephen on Night Gallery, and he did. Uh, we did uh, two episodes of a television series called The Psychiatrist, and I think there were about six, and that was canceled. Then I did his first film, Sugarland Express, first theatrical release, and Richard Zanuck and David Brown uh, were the producers. And they were big heavyweights. I mean, they did The Sting, Butch Cassidy, and Sundance Kid, and all that. In any case, I was working at Universal as a staff art director. In other words, 
there's a head of the art department, and he tells you what you're going to do. Oh, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. So there's, it's pretty much assigned to you your, your work. So it was a very unusual thing. I was doing a television movie. They were called Movies of the Week. I was doing the double indemnity. And uh, it was uh, a lot of locations, so I didn't have too much work. I just had to find locations. Anyway, I get a call from David Brown. And uh, David, big-time producer, his wife, Helen Gurley Brown, was the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. And she was reading these galley sheets of this book called Jaws, uh, a new writer, Peter Benchley. And he said, uh, she thinks this might make a good movie, Joe, and just wondered if you could do some, send you the galley sheets, and if you could do some illustrations uh, to point out the activity of the shark. And then we could see if we could sell this to the uh, studio. Now, he didn't have a charge number, so he uh, basically I did it for nothing. I told the head of the art department, and he said, oh, fine, Zanuck and Brown, they're big, big deals. So w- what happened is uh, after I checked my sets for Double Indemnity, I'd come to the office, and I'd start doing uh, shark drawings uh, based on the, the galley sheets. And uh, I would go over to Stevens' uh, cabana, because we were friends after doing Sugar Land, and I was saying, you know, I think this is going to be pretty exciting. And he said, oh, uh, he wanted to do a pirate movie. Anyway, they, um, then they were, Zadika Brown were talking about this other guy doing the movie, uh, but they didn't like him because he kept calling it a whale. All right, so finally, uh, after I got, and most, all the drawings pretty much are in the book. Uh, they're the, the illustrated charcoal drawing ones. Uh, and those are based on on the book. So then we had a um, a meeting uh, with all the department heads. That was very important to have department heads. You had a head of photography, editing, special effects, art department stuff. So Marshall Green was the head of uh, production, and uh, we had a meeting with all those guys and. Uh, Stephen had just been brought on, so I go through my whole big spiel uh, about uh, uh, the shark does this and the shark does that, and in my conversations with Stephen prior to the meeting, we said if we were going to do this, we wanted to do like a full, a big shark, bigger than normal, 25 feet in the real ocean, you know, animated shark in the real ocean, which really had never been done. Because most of they do miniatures or they do it on the back lot in a lake against a a backdrop. Anyway, so uh, I I do my whole big spiel, and then uh, Marshall Green turns to the effects department and said, you know, can you guys make this shark? And they said... uh, no, no, I mean, it's never been done. I mean, it could take a year, year and a half, you know, to see if you could do it in the real ocean. And besides, we have bigger movies like the Hindenburg, you know. And uh, so Marshall got a little upset, and he said, well, you know, Jaws could be a bigger movie than the Hindenburg. And everybody laughed because the Hindenburg was the big, you know, big movie. 
And Jaws was just a shark movie, a small, cheap shark movie. So the meeting broke up. I was collecting my drawings, and Marshall called me back. And Marshall lived on a boat, so he sort of had an attraction to this idea of this water movie. And he said, can you get the shark made? And uh, I said, well, sure, I'll certainly try. And he says, all right, we'll take it off the lot. And everything was done in-house at those times. You know, he did it at Universal, did it in their effects department, whatever. So he said, uh, well, find somebody to do it, some people, put a group together, and take it off the lot. Don't do anything on the lot. So basically, that was it. I was given uh, the uh, total autonomy to go make a shark and get a crew. And so that was sort of unusual. Uh, And then I started... uh, working with an exeologist and doing models uh, and the sculptor of the thing. and So that's basically how it starts. So I was uh, probably, yeah, before Stephen, before we had a crew, you know. That's incredible. That was the beginning. And you, and the idea was laughed at. Yeah. Who's laughing <laughs> now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, Who's they, laughing I, now? Well, so it started that way, and, and I just have to point this out. I always have to clarify this because they say the shark didn't work, the shark didn't work, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, everybody, I went to Disney, and I talked to other people, Joe Lombardo, who did Godfathers and stuff, effects guy. He said it would take a year, year and a half to build this thing and test it in the ocean. And so I put together a crew. I found Bob Matty, who had done the giant squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, he was sort of retired. We put together a, a, a crew of people, Corey who did all the skins and plastics. And that was probably uh, November of 73. So they really didn't get everything started working uh, until, you know, November, December of 73. The book came out in 74, and it was such a success. The studio said, we've got to start shooting this in two months. So, where's my year, year and a half? (laughs) We were like three months into building it when we had to take whatever we had and go to Martha's Vineyard and try to continue to build it and test it. And so, uh, it's uh, it was extremely difficult, and and I got very upset uh, when we were over schedule, over budget, because we had to test it. And if it worked, we shot it. If if it didn't work, we it was a test, and uh, I explained that to everyone. And uh, so as we went over our schedule, over budget, then everybody blamed the shark. Oh, the shark didn't work. Shark didn't work. Well, if you look at my book, there's about 200 storyboards, and there's a lot of sharks, and every shark drawing, we got that shot. So we got every shot that we wanted. We didn't substitute the barrels because we didn't have a shot. We used the barrels because they were like a Hitchcock thing. You know, the shark is there. So I I have to defend this all the time because I still hear this from critics and talk shows. And they say, well, the shark didn't work, so you didn't, you know. uh, That's nonsense. (laughs) Okay? Yeah, yeah. I got that out of my (laughs) <laughs> well, it seems like it's important to clarify, yeah. though. Yeah, for Absolutely. sure. 
Um, David, I wanted to ask you, you, you said earlier in the episode you were already uh, living at Martha's Vineyard. How did you end up in the film? I was a, a, a five-year-old kid. Uh, I had only lived on the vineyard about a year before the film uh, arrived. And I was uh, at Oak Bluffs Elementary School. Oak Bluffs is one of the towns on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, coincidentally, uh, Oak Bluffs Harbor is where they had what was called Shark City, uh, where most of the sharks were uh, were kept, uh, you know, when they weren't shooting. And they were on these platform barges that they built. So, uh, you know, we were aware of the film, uh, you know, the local newspapers, the uh, the Gazette and uh, the MV Times and other papers were basically that was the conduit that they were putting out the casting calls, you know, that they were casting extras. Um, and because uh, they, you know, Jaws relied so heavily upon the locals of Martha's Vineyard uh, from extras like me uh, to people who had boats, um, uh, you know, just a, a great deal of people. When Joe talks about going off the lot, you know, they, they came with a pretty sizable crew. But the challenges on the film really required, you know, um, as much collaboration between vineyard people and Hollywood people as they could possibly pull together. And in many cases, it was uh, it was critical to the success of being able to make some things happen, uh, because uh, I think, you know, and Joe will attest that. You know, understanding the Atlantic Ocean in New England is, uh, you know, it's it, it may seem to be, you know, uh, common on, on in one uh, period of time. And then it's a torrent and there's currents and that there's, you know, I mean, it's it's a rough ocean up here. So oh, yeah. um, but um, so anyway, uh, my uh, I actually was a there's not a lot of people who can say that in kindergarten they had a drama teacher. But um, my drama teacher in kindergarten in Oak Bluffs was Lee Fierro, who plays Mrs. Kintner. Oh, and wow. Lee was an accomplished actress in New York City who relocated to Martha's Vineyard. And she was just a really wonderful woman. She, uh, she did the children's theater on the island. She uh, was at the school teaching drama classes. She ran the uh, island theater workshops and really made a mark for herself as an actress uh, who, who wanted to teach and share uh, the love of theater and acting uh, with as many people as she could possibly reach. So um, I was in class with her one day. Uh, Jaws was in town. We were all aware of it. And people were going for casting calls. But Lee said uh, at the end of one of our classes, she goes, by the way, I've been cast in Jaws, and we're shooting this scene, and we need some kids to come down to where we're shooting near uh, the big bridge. And a lot of people today call it Jaws Bridge because it's the bridge everybody sees in the movie during the Fourth of July sequence. Right. Um, okay. But uh, at the time, we knew it as Big Bridge because on State Beach, there's a little bridge that's just past the golf course, and then you go another mile and a half down the road, and there's the big bridge. So um, I was actually taking swimming lessons that were mandated by the town of Oak Bluffs as, you know, every little kid needed to take swimming lessons just for public safety. And so I said, OK, well, I'm going to go down to Big Bridge because Lee said that they're shooting the movie and and they needed some kids to come down. It, you know, it, and it's funny because uh, you guys all it sounds like everybody's pretty much younger than Joe and I. I'm, I'm a lot younger than Joe and you guys are younger than me. Um, but in 1974, on Martha's Vineyard, it was not uncommon to see a little kid like me <laughs> stick my thumb out and hitchhike uh, to get down to places on the island. 
And so I was hitchhiking, and that's how I got from the swimming lesson location. I was at Inkwell Beach, and then I went down to um, Big Bridge, which is probably about a, a two, two-and-a-half-mile uh, stretch between the two. And uh, I hitchhiked down and, and got to the set. And uh, the set was the, uh, the Alex Kintner attack sequence with uh, Roy Scheider sitting in the chair there on the beach and yeah. Lee Fierro with her son, uh, Alex, um, played by Jeff Voorhees. Jeff is actually uh, still on the vineyard, and he manages the Wharf Restaurant in Edgartown. And if you want to go in and get a signed T-shirt by Jeff, um, the, you know, he goes, I got killed by Jaws here on this beach. And uh, <laughs> Jeff's a really fun guy. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of vineyarders that are still were involved in the film who are down there who are either extras or, you know, worked on a boat or, or uh, you know, what have you. So uh, you'll find plenty of them. And the vineyard still very, very much looks like the same location because it does very much. It, it, it's, it's a quaint New England sea, sea village, uh, you know, fishing area. It's gotten a lot more built up over time. There's a lot more people that go there. You know, we started having presidents show up and, oh, and wow. after Jaws, it, it, it was uh, no longer that big of a secret. Uh, and it, now to this day, it's, you know, it's one of the most popular, uh, you know, destinations for people during the summer. Right. Uh, you know, forget it. If you want to get a ferry reservation between June and August during the weekend, you have to make it in January. Yep. It's that busy now. Um, but um, so anyway, my my sequence, uh, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I was a five year old kid and I was expecting, you know, I think I kind of pictured you know, a camera guy and then a couple people and telling, you know, but whatever, whatever I pictured a movie was, it was a lot smaller than what I actually ran into, which was, you know, the, 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 the huge lights, the grip and electric truck set up, lots of people running around. There was many extras for that scene. So there was quite a lot of people. And this stuff was shot early spring. This was not, you know, they, they, you know, Joe did his scouting in, um, in about, uh, you know, December, uh, and, and there was still snow on the ground when they were when he was there finding the island, which uh, is, is a great little story because Joe was supposed to go to Nantucket. And because oh, wow. of the weather, the ferry wasn't running to Nantucket. So he ended up taking a ferry to Martha's Vineyard because it was available. And that's how he discovered the vineyard, which the more he saw the place between Menemsha and Edgartown and everything that he saw, it just pr proved to be a great place, plus the 25 foot depth of the uh, the water to be able to set up the platform shark. Um, oh, I see. So, yeah, so there were some components that, uh, you know, and, and Peter Benchley had told Joe, you know, you really go to Nantucket, there's nothing on the vineyard. And, uh, you know, Nantucket is certainly, it's, a, it's a, a great little location, but I don't think it had quite the variety and the character uh, that you would find, like you find on Martha's Vineyard. Right. Um, oh, yeah, so, I can't imagine um, that movie taking but, place anywhere else, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty iconic now, um, but yeah, it was uh, it was you know being an extra in the film was you know an incredible experience for me. It was like a lot of things in Jaws. It just kind of like happened. It was uh, one of these things that you know I just kind of walked into, and, right. and uh, you know it was the that spring uh, when the film came out, they had a special screening in Oak Bluffs for us. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I think in some ways, a lot of the people who went to that screening in Oak Bluffs were kind of thinking, oh, we're going to see our friends and our neighbors. And we're going to see where they shot this. And it was going to be sort of like a, a who's who and almost like a, uh, a home movie for the island, you know. 
And, uh, and people were completely blown away and devastated by how terrifying the film was and how everything worked out in such a way because most of the people on the island knew how long it took to shoot the film, the challenges that were going on, um, you know, that there was just a great deal of, I mean, and this is one of the things about the making of Jaws that I think is so interesting um, and why, you know, Joe and I, we met a couple of years ago and started talking about this project together, making the monster about the making of Jaws, was that, you know, the, the, the shark issues and so forth with being rushed into production, I mean, it's really the tip of the iceberg of what happened on Martha's Vineyard. You know, there were more challenges than most people can even really understand. Uh, sure. You know, between people, between the elements, um, you know, there was uh, elements of sabotage. There was elements of just all these things that happen. Uh, that, you know, if, if anything could go wrong uh, during the production, uh, it often did. And then suddenly things started to click. But that crew had to hang on and just work and work and work through the problems until they were past those problems. Right. And uh, and I'm I'm sure a great deal of, of, of tension and stress and and uh, and apprehension about what could possibly be you know what, where could things finally start to help uh, and and make things you know turn a direction so that they knew they were going to be turning in something that was going to be you know even complete the film considering in the beginning how many challenges that they had right. It's incredible. You know, I mentioned at the, uh, we were talking at the top of the episode about the T-Rex from Jurassic Park, uh, at least in that one scene being animatronic. And uh, I was watching a little like 20, 30 minute behind the scenes of the filming of that shot. And one thing they weren't prepared for was, you know, there's a lot of rain falling in that scene. That animatronic would saturate, get real heavy and his movements of them would become choppy. So they'd have to stop shooting stop the water and the crew would spend what four to six hours just drying off. him off <laughs> getting him moving smoothly again just to get another 20 minutes of footage you know yeah. before they'd have to stop and start the process over so seeing this you know knowing that's in 1993 and in 1975 <laughs> they put the whole shark in the water, the real ocean. Mm -hmm. I can't even begin to imagine the trials and tribulations. It's like Dave said, you could probably never wrap your head around all of them. It makes you appreciate movies more when you find out the hardships that were going on during oh, yeah. the making of the movie. Oh, yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah, because it's not just something done for money. Blood, sweat, and tears, yeah. vision. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, it's, it's all there. And, you know, Dave, you growing up on the island and, you know, not only having... You know that that part in the film, but from what I'm picking up from you is, you know, it's so, there's so many landmarks, so many people on the island were in the film. It's such a part of the culture and the community there that it's, uh, you know, no wonder so many years later you were spearheaded return of the orca, which was rebuilding uh, the orca uh, boat from the film. Are you able to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, certainly. Well, it's um, it, it's it's a it's one of these stories that kind of comes out of the you know the beginning of the project um, when Joe and I met and and I described to Joe uh, making the monster and and we began to collaborate and talk about how we could move this project forward and it, it really to understand the return of the orca project you need to understand um, how we began with making the monster and making the monster um, it, it began basically it started as a just a feature film idea. Um, that was really centered around the crew of Jaws. What did they go through? What was it like personally for them to experience being thrown into a situation 
where they were now on this island thousands of miles from home and working on a project that was posing every possible challenge uh, with regard to working on the real ocean, dealing with the mechanical shark that they had never built before, mm-hmm. dealing with locals, dealing with, uh, you know, the local government. Um, you know, Joe had a lot of experiences dealing with the selectmen in trying to get many of his sets built, for example, Quint Shack out of Menemsha, and, uh, you know, understanding how to ne- negotiate all these different challenges on every level when you're trying to just make a great film and you run into situations that, uh, that you didn't anticipate because you're in unknown territory. But, uh, you know, we developed the idea into a multi-part uh, limited television series because Jaws was shot over, you know, 100, 159 days on Martha's Vineyard plus many weeks uh, out on, uh, you know, in California uh, between the back lot and Catalina Island and, and other places. So, it really wouldn't be done right and, and comprehensively in a feature film. And, uh, you know, Joe and I are both huge fans of, of episodic television like Breaking Bad and other serialized dramas in which you're kind of, you always want that cliffhanger. What's going to happen? You know, we set up the, get to the end of an episode, you know that they're, had, they're having problems. How are they going to solve these problems? What is, you know, is anybody going to hit their breaking point? Where is the tension in the relationships and how is that going to develop? And you always want, you know, great television is about making you want to see the next episode. So um, we've been developing this project, and and Joe had me out to his home in California to interview a number of the crew um, because we wanted to both get those interviews for the sake of research for the writing staff that I'm working with, as well as having um, uh, some of the interviews actually appear in the series, kind of like Break uh, or Band of Brothers, when you see the actual people who participated in, you know, the events uh, set up the beginning of the episode, and then you get into the docudrama phase, okay. uh, where you actually oh, cool. see the characters and the actors. Um, and that's the important thing. A lot of people do get easily confused, thinking that this is going to be a documentary series. No, it's a docudrama. It's like the Apollo 13 of the making of Jaws. We're going to have actors. We have scripts. We want to be able to shoot as much on Martha's Vineyard at the actual locations as possible. And for, you know, people like Joe and, and others to be represented by actors and, and for their voices from 1974 to be brought into the present um, and to understand what they went through. Um, but one of the things that I knew that we were going to need for this project was an orca. Because if there's any one prop from Jaws besides the shark... That is, an, you know, a, a, and indeed a, a necessary component. Uh, you know, the second act of Jaws is basically all takes place aboard the Orca. And there's plenty of drama. We've all heard about the tensions between, you know, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. Right. And they were, they, they were out at sea shooting for a long time. Everybody got seasick. They shot in different places. They were off the east side of Martha's Vineyard in the open ocean where the elements were just pounding that boat and the whole crew on multiple vessels, you know, they had many, many boats that were supporting the, sh- the, the production out there. So um, uh, one of the gentlemen that I met uh, during the development of the project is Chris Crawford. And Chris was hired by Joe back in 74 uh, to uh, take the original boat that they purchased, the Warlock, which was a Nova Scotia-style fishing vessel. Uh, lobster boat, really. They're just, they're kind of like the tractors of the sea out here. You know, they, they do all this work. <laughs> right. They basically, they, they, they haul traps. 
Uh, they do sword fishing. You know, they're they're built to be utility, uh, uh, you know, vessels. Uh, and sometimes they get converted into pleasure craft and things like that. And the warlock had been sort of turned into a bit more of of a, of a leisure vessel uh, when they picked it up. It was uh, you could see the finishes on it were a little bit more well done. And maybe somebody was actually using it for enjoying, you know, just fishing and going out there and just being out on the water. So Chris was hired by Joe, and I met Chris on the vineyard. He still lives there in the same house that that Jaws built. Um, <laughs> when he worked on Jaws, uh, converting the uh, the Warlock into the Orca, and uh, and uh, he hired uh, all of the people that he knew who would be the 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 most uh, you know seasoned and and uh, adept and and fastest. Uh, because I think he said it took them about six, seven weeks to get the warlock turned into the orca. And those were long days and very few, very little time off and to be able to meet that schedule. And the next thing that happened was Chris was hired to actually be the production pilot of the orca. So anytime you see the orca in the movie underway, uh, it's basically Chris, you know, ducking down behind, you know, the window or something like that. And it looks like... It looks like, uh, you know, uh, maybe Hooper is driving the boat or, or uh, Robert Shaw is driving the boat. Uh, and for moments, it looks like Roy Scheider is driving the boat. But at, at all times, it was either Chris or uh, Fred Zendar. There was two of them, basically. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, but Chris did a lot of the work on, on driving the vessel. And uh, it's funny. I, I brought up the, uh, the 4K release. The, uh, the, it just came out for the 45th anniversary of the film. And if you look closely, you'll see there's four people on the orca in some long shots. Um, <laughs> so I don't think you necessarily would have seen it in the in the Blu-ray or you know the VHS copy, but in the 4K. And I pay attention because I was like, Chris has got to be in one of these shots. There's just got to be <laughs> at some point. They didn't, you know, there was no CGI. Anyway, uh, Chris uh, and I basically started looking for a boat that could become the next orca for making the monster. And identified one on the north shore of Massachusetts in Amesbury. Um, the original uh, Warlock uh, back in 74 was purchased in Marblehead, north shore of Massachusetts as well. Um, and that's where most of these boats you're going to find them. They come from Nova Scotia. They go through Maine, New Hampshire, uh, and, and get used up through, you know, sometimes they get as far south as like Fall River or Rhode Island. Um, but uh, this is the area that where you find those kinds of boats. So. Right. Um, but the, you know, we're working on developing, uh, uh, making the monster. We have this boat, we move it to Martha's vineyard. We, we basically get it on a truck, bring it over on the ferry and, uh, and bring it to the vineyard and put it up on, uh, what they call on the hard, basically up on land on, on some stilts, some, some jacks mm -hmm. and say, okay, well, when we, we basically need to get this thing, you know, get it ready to be able to be converted into an orca. Uh, for the television production once we're ready to hit the, the ground. Well, we have, you know, things are moving along, and there's some relationships that, that Joe has set me up with that has actually gotten the, the project further along, and, and uh, we'd love to be able to announce that at the right time, uh, some of the people that we're, we're working with, because people have gotten a lot of interest in being able to develop this story. But a lot of them, and, like, I work in television here uh, in Boston as well, everybody got shut down by COVID. You know, uh, March comes around and basically no cameras are rolling. Everybody's basically having to hunker down and uh, and do, uh, you know, do their best sort of work from home. Uh, and that means no productions are really able to do anything, you know, post-production and editing of any project that had already been shot uh, could certainly go on. So 
I decided, I said, well, we've got this boat and it's sitting here <laughs> and what is it that we could do? And, um, you know, it's funny over the last couple of years, uh, you know, Joe and I have talked about, you know, the Jaws phenomenon and how Jaws is still so popular and other things like we still have, we actually have grown a huge great white shark problem off the coast of Massachusetts. Right. Two years ago, we had a fatality. Uh, a young man was uh, boogie boarding off of Wellfleet uh, on Cape Cod, and he was bitten and bled out on the beach, unfortunately, and, and died. And two, uh, just a few weeks ago, we had our first fatality from a great white shark um, off Harpswell Island in Maine. And Maine has never had a, a great white shark, a fatal great white shark attack. More and more beaches are closing uh, this summer uh, there were beaches that had never been closed before because of shark sightings. And uh, it's a growing issue because we have this huge uh, seal population that continues to grow. They're federally protected. The water does get warmer, you know, because of climate change. We've seen the water temperature slowly over time continue to get warmer and warmer. And I decided that maybe the best thing to do, and, and yes, making the monster is likely to have a future, and, and we will need an orca for that. But I thought, what if we could be part of doing something actually helpful today? Uh, and uh, Return to the Orca uh, has been formed as a mission to be part of shark research and exploration and education. You know, we're working, we just recently partnered with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy and Greg Skomel. Uh, Greg Skomel uh, is kind of like the Matt Hooper of Cape Cod. He's <laughs> the shark biologist on record. He's on Discovery Channel Shark Week uh, every year. Uh, he's a great guy, uh, knows as much about sharks as anybody in this area, and has been successfully tagging great whites with uh, the uh, the transponders uh, that we have all these these buoys that basically detect where they are uh, in the water, and uh, has seen a great rise in the shark population, and is very excited <laughs> to actually be able to get aboard the Orca 3. We're calling it the Orca 3 because there was two Orcas for the film, the original Orca, and then the fiberglass, uh, you know, uh, duplicate of the original orca that couldn't sail, but basically was used as a prop to, you know, put the the final climactic battle with right, Chief yeah. Brody on, so it could sink and raise, and they could reset it for take doing more takes. Um, so the orca three, the idea is the mission will be that she is a, a research and exploration and education vessel off Martha's Vineyard because. When I go to the vineyard, I've been going to the vineyard my entire life ever since I lived there as a kid. I went to the beach this past summer off South Beach, and I saw no less than seven seals in the water in under an hour. Oh, and I have I have never seen, I, I mean, two summers ago, I, I would see a seal or two, you know, my whole day. Right. And now I'm seeing seven in under an hour. And there are guards who are basically whistling and telling everybody to get out of the water. And I, I, I've been talking with Greg Skomel more and more, and he says there's two islands just off of Martha's Vineyard, No Man's Island, which used to be a, uh, a basically a, an Air Force uh, bombing uh, site that they would just sort of pilots would practice on. Now it's a protected turn reserve and also a huge location for seals to basically, you know, uh, lie out on the, on the beaches and sun themselves. And then there's another island called Muskegon Island just off the east side of Martha's Vineyard which is the largest seal uh, birthing population in the United States. Wow. So between those two spots, 
the theory is, and, and this is the problem, nobody, you know, the, the Orca 3 is going to fulfill a gap because there is nobody doing research around Martha's Vineyard with regard to great white sharks. They do a great deal of research off of Cape Cod, north of the island, because that's where all these sharks are at the moment. Right. But we've been seeing expansion of the shark population, and we're understanding that now this situation isn't staying the way it, it, it is. It's dynamically changing. The water gets warmer. The seals are continuing to grow in population. And the Orca 3 could actually be something that is going to be part of understanding the greater picture of what's happening with the great white shark population in the area. And because of what the boat is, how it represents from the film, you know, people are interested in seeing, you know, the, we've got, you know, luckily we've gotten a great deal of press. Everybody's very interested in the story. And I appreciate you gentlemen being interested as well. Mm -hmm. But I think it's because people say, you know, the orca is coming back. We haven't had the orca was basically, uh, you know, like Joe says, they throw away these props, you know. Right. Oh. The orca, too, was left on the vineyard and was taken apart. Um, uh, Lynn Murphy basically took possession of it. And over time, it just kind of got picked apart by people wanting to get a piece of the orca, too. And the original orca went to the backlot lake on Universal Studios and just kind of dry rotted away until they finally destroyed it yeah. and oh. wasn't preserved. And so uh, that's not quite true. That, that. No, no, it, it wasn't rotting away. It, Stephen used to go there and sit on it, uh, but some executive didn't wasn't familiar with it and said, "What is this old boat doing here?" and had it d demolished. Oh, oh my so god! He was pretty upset about that. I thought I because I I thought I had seen an interview with Stephen in which he said that there were termites and dry rot and that somebody decided it just was not. Well, yeah, be, uh, but yeah. they didn't have to destroy it. They yeah. they could have maintained it. Yeah, certainly. You know. Yeah, I think in the end, the you know, however it led to the basically losing the boat, it was just and it was something that Stephen was very unhappy about because Stephen would go to the boat very often. It was kind of a a place that he would sort of remember what it was like to film Jaws. And uh, he, you know, he, it was something that even after the making of, of Close Encounters and other projects, uh, it was just sort of a place that he, he, he admitted in an interview that it was kind of a place that he would kind of work out his trauma. You know, working on Jaws was one of the most difficult experiences for him. So uh, in many ways, it was kind of upsetting to lose that location, that place that he could sort of process what he went through. Um, but I heard you, uh, you mentioned the, the DeLorean from Back to the Future. I did only because, uh, you know, after the movies were made, they had, they had set it on the lot, uh, just where anybody could walk past it. People taking tours, people just visiting the amusement parks. And over time, people started breaking little pieces off that they could take home as souvenir mm. souvenirs. And over time, you know, this, this iconic prop, it's one of the, just like the orca, it's a character as much as the people in it. Right. In the other, you know, in the film, it's just sitting there decaying. And you would think that uh, people, you know, with the orca, with with the DeLorean, et cetera, et cetera, would see these things as such, you know, iconic props. We need to preserve these things, not just, uh, yeah, destroy. I can't imagine. But, I can't imagine. you know, the, the studio sold the orca when we got back from location. I mean, that's how much confidence they had in the movie. They got rid of one of the main props. They sold it to some grip. So when the movie became successful, then they had to go find it and buy it back. 
Wow. And he got a pretty good markup on that price. <laughs> I was just going to say, somebody before. made out. <laughs> the original uh, chair, Quince chair, I think sold for like $15,000. And uh, the letters, Orca, which I had done in brass, they were pulled off and sold separately for a lot. So, uh, yeah, that it's is the way incredible. things go. Yeah. Yes, actually, it's Peter Pete Spadetti in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, has the uh, the fighting chair, uh, and and yeah. Joe, I think the the number is actually he played he paid more than thirty thousand dollars at auction for that chair. Uh, oh, I heard it was fifteen. Yeah, he I, I, okay. I, when I talked to him, he said it was over thirty. Um, he did uh, he spent he did get the rod and reel the original rod and reel that uh, Quint uses in the chair right. the first encounter with the shark. Um, that might have been closer to actually uh, 15, uh, and he's actually got the toe fin. Uh, this this guy spent a lot of money. I think he's just waiting for someday to cash it in for his uh, his retirement um, <laughs> to have it. Um, but he has uh, quite a few screen used props, including the actual production sign that they hung over the Christine Peace House. Uh, where the production offices were in uh, Egertown. Joe, you might have painted that sign. Is that correct? The production sign that hung over the office? Well, I didn't paint it, but I had somebody paint it, yes, of course. Okay. Uh, I had, yeah, some signs painted. and I had a very small crew. I, I, I brought a painter and a carpenter, and uh, I used mostly locals, except signs and things like that, and the big poster, the big billboard, I had a lot of that done at the studio at the sign shop there that I was very familiar with. And then they sent up to the vineyard, you know. Right. Funny you guys mentioned uh, Back to the Future and the DeLorean. Joe actually hired uh, a gentleman named Kevin Pike, who was uh, basically working at a restaurant that Joe and, and other production crew were at. And uh, they met because uh, uh, Joe had left behind uh, in the restaurant, uh, a copy of the storyboards uh, that, that he was using, and Kevin Kevin Pike brought them out into the uh, parking lot uh, when Joe and his his uh, colleagues were were leaving, and uh, and basically Joe offered him a job to be able to work on the production. Kevin Pike went on to actually design the DeLorean for Back to the Future years later. Thank God you left that book in there, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he worked on a number of things. He did work on Close Encounters and Jaws 2 and, you know, yeah. followed his career. Incredible. That's the way you do it, you know. You, yeah. Get your foot in the door and then uh, keep working the rest of yourself in, right? Well, so, there's so yeah, many stories lucky, on the vineyard. Think, you know. Yeah. There were so many people from the vineyard who kind of, I think that that was the beginning for them that they didn't expect until the production showed up and they... Uh, you know, they went on to uh, work so long on the film and make such good relationships and contact that it changed their lives and, and created new careers for them. Um, and uh, that was a, you know, a, a, a sort of milestone for a lot of people of, uh, you know, because movies weren't really, sh I think the only other movies shot in the Boston area or in the Cape area, um, there had been a couple, you know, I think we had the Brinks job with Peter Falk uh, that was shot in the area. Uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle, but it wasn't a large location for movie making in any way. And so it was really a, uh, you know, and, and of course, Jaws 2 came back for some production, not a great deal. A lot of that was shot down in Florida, but, uh, you know. Yeah, but there's was, a reason uh, for that. Well, Joe, the reason, you can tell that you story. Know, 
<laughs> yeah, the, the thing is, Vineyard uh, was great in some respects, but I scouted that. I got on the Vineyard, actually, it was on December 17th. Uh, 1973, and so I scouted the whole East Coast, uh, Long Island, and but it was it was snow on the beaches, and it was just deserted. But it was beautiful. But there was nobody out there, so that was great. And, and the island worked perfectly, and the depth of the water was perfect—25 feet with a small tide, two feet. Where here on the West Coast it's 14. 12 feet. Anyway, that was fine. But then come June and July, and the view out there in the ocean is just loaded with boats. Loaded with boats. And so we had a real problem, not only with the shark not having the time to test it, Stephen didn't want to see any boats out there. He wanted just an empty. He wanted these guys isolated. That's why they broke the radio, and they're isolated. So Stephen was so firm about this, he doesn't want to see anything. Well, it was so difficult to get everybody, the boats, to sail in a different direction. Some people, we would send little boats out there, would you mind sailing? Some did. Some were just, no, they're going to do what they're going to do. (laughs) So that's one of the big time-consuming parts of the movie and the the schedule. And Stephen was for a young guy was very strong. No, I'm not going to see any boats. And the studio was pretty upset about that. So the, just the problems there. So on Jaws 2, I was shooting the movie called Close Encounters of Third Kind in Mobile, Alabama. And Pensacola, I'd go on Sundays to the beach in Pensacola. And it was a beautiful beach and nobody out there. So when we did Jaws 2, uh, we decided to do all the basic run-by stuff on the island, familiar stuff, and then all the shark stuff we did in Pensacola, uh, Navarre Beach. Uh, and, and now we have no problem with any boats. So, yeah, so the, the island was perfect, except it wasn't. <laughs> and not only, not only was it, you know, there was a lot of political things there because of... Uh, the Kennedy thing, you know, Chappaquiddick, and 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 Dick Zanuck was very concerned about the shooting there. And what Stephen did, because the selectmen were very, oh, you know, we we don't want, you know, we got rich people living here, we don't want the movie shot here, but he hired all those selectmen and put them in the movie, so they got into it, and then we were there earlier than the tourist season, so we started using the motels, hotels, and stuff. And then, as I said, I bought a painter and a carpenter, so I hired all local, you know, the people that needed work. Right. Uh, so it worked out It worked out fine, uh, except for too many boats out in the ocean. I, I, yeah. I, I think if there were any boats in those shots, it would uh, totally take from it. Because why, you know, why is the shark just uh, coming after this boat? Right. You know? <laughs> There's all those other ones back there. Why are you picking that one? I mean, I guess they're throwing the chum out, but all the same, you think it'd be messing with somebody else along the way. You know, I think they needed to feel like they were the only, they, it was a private battle between them and the shark, and, and there was right, no exactly. help coming. That's, yeah, yeah. That, that was sense. a unique thing that Stephen did. 
if you look at the movie and forget about the shark, it's the relationship between those two guys. Right. You know, the tough fisherman, you know, the archaeologist, young, smart-ass kid, and then, you know, the sheriff who didn't want to be on a boat anyway. <laughs> and their relationship, and oh, and then there's a big shark that's going to get them. Yeah, you know? it makes everything that much better. That, that's what made it, Yeah. I've got uh, one more question I'm going to throw kind of at both of you here, and it might even be a uh, stupid question, but we'll see. Let's find out. Uh, if a fourth installment of Jaws was being done today and both of you were brought on to work on this film, would you, you know, with the technologies available today, would you still go through all the trials, the tribulation, the hell that making these films originally with practical effects was? Would you do that all again? Or would you uh, lean more toward the CGI or, or, or effects like that? My opinion, uh, CGI is, uh, has been terrific. It wasn't so terrific before because or what, what the problem with CGI is they overuse it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they have one shark, they could have a thousand sharks. And, uh, but I would build uh, an animatronic full-size thing for close-ups that interrelate with the actors uh, because you're not always having to act against green screen. And then I think uh, the rest of the uh, chart activity, I would do CGI. Okay. There you go. I, I would agree with That's Joe right. on, 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 on a level, except the, the, the only thing I would think is I, I think what makes Jaws work is the um, is a lot of intangibles that you know at the time of the filmmaking were you know not really identified as the best way that they needed. They knew that they had some challenges and 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 so I really again I, and I look at films like Alien and other really effective horror and thriller stories as being ones that allow your imagination to be the one that really scares you the most. And I would not, uh, I would, I would think that you'd want to still hold back, you know, make that shark count when it shows up. And, um, you know, and I think that, you know, today, um, you know, you've got guys like Greg Nicotero and others who are an incredible practical effects designers who right. can create incredibly great looking sharks um, and, and create moments that where those, uh, you know, the appearance of the shark really matters you know and um it's not something where i think you need to fill the film with as much shark as you can possibly fill it i think that's why we have things like sharknado you know to have fun with that kind of thing. get um, your fill there well, this is, this is but, what i'm saying david you you built the shark or interacts with somebody but for long shots why do you have to build a big shark you know. Right, yeah. right, and I think that CGI has gotten to a point where it's really hard to be able to see the CGI being used. I think it's gone through yeah, a period I, of no, real, I think it's, yeah, yeah, yeah maturation, right. and there are shots that are just probably very, very almost impossible to pull off unless you do it with CGI. Um, but I would let the story, I would let the characters, I would let the script be the 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 the, the, the real priority in telling the story if you were to make another Jaws film. And I think you would really, I mean, you know, this is something that comes up a lot in the community is, you know, should there be another Jaws? And God forbid you bring up a remake. That's the big, that's the four-letter yeah, word. Oh, no. They, Jaws. Yeah, no way. And, and I, I agree, there's no need to do that. Um, but I think that, you know, the story um, could live on, but I think that there's a there needs to be a fresher take on it. 
And I think that, you know, using the technology smartly and, and intelligently um, with a really talented director and a really great design team uh, with a script that really says, yeah, this is deserving of going back into this franchise and, and telling another story. Right. Um, and uh, yeah. Are you Glenn, saying it, telling another story or, or remaking it? Not remaking it. Are you no, saying I'm, the next installment? Oh, so you're, you're, you're saying a, a Jaws 5? Right. Right. Yeah, because there was there was four films. Yeah, um, but if there, well, there was a five, let's see. Revenge. Yeah, it was Jaws the Revenge um, that took place in the Bahamas. <laughs> I was um, not even aware of this one. I got some watching to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I could, I could tell you stories about that, but, you know. <laughs> um, no, because maybe... uh, Go ahead, on Jaws 3, I didn't use Lorraine. Lorraine is married to Sid Scheinberg, who is the president of, of Universal. And uh, we used her on one and two, but not on three. So when I was sort of through with making shark movies, uh, they made her one of the principal characters in four. Right. So they brought her back. And um, no, it, it didn't work, you know, because people don't even remember if they do talk about one, two, and three, but... Uh, yeah, four is not mentioned very often. Well, they made the shark well, in a four, serial killer. They, in four, they well, the four the shark follows the Brody family to the Caribbean. Right, vendetta shark. And 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 Ellen Brody's character has flashbacks to moments that she was never even present for. You know, right. like smile, you son of a bitch, and these things. Right. Um, so, uh, and and the practical shark, the shark roars like a tiger at one moment. I mean, it's just wow. it was it was. If if you watch the film, uh, listen, I'm not going to slam filmmakers about. You know, I think that every film has its own you know challenges, and there's they all have stories about what you know what challenges they went through. Um, but the film stands on its own as taking a lot of liberties in storytelling. I'll just put it there. Right. Now you have me scared to watch it. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds kind of fun, though, all the same. All the same. I want to uh, thank both of you guys for being here today. This has been an absolute uh, pleasure. Again, uh, if you want to send us a link when, you know, making the monster is available or where people can get it, we will definitely be pushing that out to our listeners. And your uh, Indiegogo that's currently going on for it. Sure. Thank you. Yes. So uh, I encourage people to keep an eye out for that. And also Joe Alves book, Designing Jaws. Again, a lot of what we talked about, you know, he said he had pre-production illustrations how there's also handwritten location and production notes blue blueprints of the shark on set photos anything a jaws fan needs so and i was able to find that book on most anywhere books can be bought i saw it on amazon and, uh, i think i might have to listen or yeah listen. it's on them i say listen Great. to it because i listen to my books but uh gentlemen joe uh david thank you so much for being here with us today Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. All right, and there you have it, our conversation with Joe Alves and David Bigelow talking all about Jaws. That was so much fun to talk to those guys. Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. And like I said in the episode, you know, it's, not, it's only because of you, Randy, that I've seen uh, Jaws. Yeah. And so glad you brought that movie <laughs> over. Because I, I was I was kind of uh, reluctant at first to go into it because again so many people had been like well you know it's an older film you right. you might be desensitized no. that's like when I saw The Shining I was told oh this movie's so scary 
No. Well, and I was actually. No? Yeah, there's parts of it that. This I movie don't like, like but... had me on the edge of my seat. Oh, and yeah. like not only that, all the characters were great. Mm-hmm. You know, the... you get so emotionally invested in them. Yeah, there's like a whole cabin scene where uh, Quint and uh, Richard Dreyfus' character are exchanging. They're showing each other their scars, right. and you know they had been at each other's necks the whole right, time during the movie, bond. and that's right when they. Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was such a cool scene. Great movie. Well, but... The other thing too, I mentioned earlier, we watched. Um, my dad and I watched that movie before we went to to Florida. We actually mm-hmm. went to Universal, I believe, the year or the year after the Jaws ride opened there. Oh, so, open. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure, but anyway. But yeah, it's not it even was, there anymore now, is it? No, it, it got shut down pretty quick. But I remember being on that and just seeing the shark, you know, pop up. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was crazy. I think they still have the dock with the shark hanging. I think you're right. There that you can go take. Oh, pictures really? Of. They, yeah, they, they do. They caught him and strung him up. I don't know if it's actual jaws they're supposed to have strung up like Bruce, or if it's like you know in the movie how they caught the shark that wasn't it, and they all thought it was yeah, it. And they had him yeah. strung up on. I don't know if it's supposed to be like a recreation of that scene, or right. if it's just supposed to be. But yeah, they do have. They still they left <laughs> the dock there. But um, anyway, here we go down another foxhole of Jaws <laughs> conversation. Um, again, I want to thank Joe and David for taking the time to talk with us tonight. This was amazing. And uh, with nothing left to say, Jack, what have we on the website? You go to candairpodcast.com. You can check out show highlights, listen to the show, follow us on all our social media, become a patron, buy some merch, follow us on our YouTube page. And if you'd like to be a guest and promote your work, send us an email on our contacts page. And once again, don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandAirPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And if you like what we're doing, head over to Patreon.com forward slash CandAirPod, where for, what is it, $5 a month, that's right, mm-hmm. get access to the CandAir Patreon pod. And, and a pin. And a pin, that's and right. Pen, yeah. I forgot yes. about the goodies on yeah. there. There's pins. Uh, Jack added the uh, CandAir Nightlights yep. over in the tier. The mm-hmm. tier. I mean, show your Candair love by getting moich, people. Getting that moich. Candair moich. What am I forgetting? Anything, gentlemen? If you're a professional looking for representation, please check out our friend Steve Joyner. Uh, he's a great guy mm-hmm. hooking us up. He's, you know, representing quite a few talented individuals. Sure. And you just can't say enough good things about this guy. So Yeah, give him a call. 816-605-4561. Again, like Randy said, need that professional representation? Well, here's a number for you. One more time, 816-605-4561. Steve Joyner. And also make sure to check out uh, uh, David's Indiegogo for the uh, Orca Project. Yeah. Uh, we actually, Candairs, uh put their money where their mouth is. and we've, Did that. Uh, yes, we've uh, uh, contributed to that. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're really... we making it happen. Yes. Candairs so. making a difference. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. So until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Randy Hardenbrook. Thank you for listening, and always be excellent to each other. could break. Whoops. Help. Quickly walk back to the edge. Stop. You'll break through the ice. 
Snow Job! Grab this branch. You should have been listening to Canned Air. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Snow Job, how'd you get your name? Um... G.I. Joe! This has been a Canned Air production. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotus, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.